right, welcome back to the Mom Mentality Show. My name is Austin Chadwick and co-host is Chris Lucian. And we are definitely very excited today to have Dion Stewart and Joel Tosi on the show today. Uh, we got some great topics lined up, uh, starting with one of their specialties, which is dojos, these immersive learning environments. Uh, then we'll talk about coaching for learning. And if there's time, we'll get into some post-agile stuff. Uh, but before jumping in, uh, let us have you both introduce yourself, starting with you, Dion. Yeah, hi. Uh, so let's see. I started off as a developer, uh, was a small talk programmer back in the 90s. That led to learning a lot of the extreme programming practices. I was in a graduate program and a prof named Dave West was bringing Ward Cunningham and Kent Beck and Adele Goldberg and a whole slew of other people on the campus. So I got exposed to a lot of the extreme programming practices before Kent's book came out, uh, which led to kind of player coach roles in the early aughts and around 2010, shifting to a full-time coaching role. And then for about the past seven years, I've been doing dojos with Joel. Really? That's the fastest Dion's ever done that. So <laughs> <laughs> I can uh, ramble. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Joel Tosi, based in Chicago. And, you know, thanks for having us. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, similar to background to Dion, except I was a, I was a little bit later on. Um, majority, you know, the background developing low latency systems in Chicago, future uh, trading platforms, those kinds of things. I won't name it. I've already kind of set up what I've, my feelings about the organization numerous times publicly, but uh, that's probably out there. I was lucky enough back then, this is like the early 2000s, um, like most organizations, you know, things weren't going as well as they could. We heard about this fancy agile and XP stuff. Uh, luckily back then I was able to uh, meet up with a gentleman named David Hussman, uh, who ended up becoming a really good friend of Dion's and mine. That's actually how we ended up meeting. Uh, learned a tremendous amount from Dion, or well, from Dion too, but also from David. Uh, David passed a few years ago, um, but uh, so did that stuff for a few years. Was an architect for Red Hat, and then like the past decade or so, uh, really just kind of started off from the coaching, but getting more into like this: how do we help teams get better? Awesome. Well, uh, maybe uh, Joel, you can kind of get us started on your thoughts on dojos and immersive learning environments. Yeah. Uh, so. I'd imagine uh, most people are aware of like the idea of dojos by now, you know, Target's been doing, talking about them for a while. Um, but we'll rewind it a little bit and talk about what was happening, you know, kind of before then. Dion and I were both at Target when it started up along with, you know, David Larrabee, who was with you guys uh, earlier on a few years back. Um, you know, this is all public knowledge, right? When Target, Target was in a position years ago where uh, they had some problems, you know, data breaches, outages, kind of those kinds of things. Um, and they were looking at ways to just improve. Uh, a gentleman there, uh, Ross Clanton, Jason Walker, and a couple other individuals said, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to create DevOps ninjas, and so we're going to do it in the dojo, and, and it just so happened that uh, Dion and I, prior to that, we were helping out in Target doing some standard agile coaching, which meant like you talk to a team for an hour today, then another team for an hour, another hour, and then maybe you do a workshop uh, and so they asked us to help out with, with these dojos and we were interested and said, well, you know, what's it about? And they said, it's about helping uh, people learn new skills. So that's really cool. So we sat in, uh, saw some options for improvement. There was just some kind of context and so a little bit of not process for process sake, but just structure uh, that we wanted to get in place to make it easier for teams. And what was quickly evident uh, to, to myself and everybody that was there was like, 
not only were the teams having better experiences and like the things that they were, since the teams were able to learn things and apply it immediately and then practice it and get feedback and try it again, it was just way more effective than what we had been doing in the past. And so like, you know, Dean and I were just talking and it's like, this is, this works, you know, we should do this more. Um, that's, that's why I think it's interesting about the dojo is just the fact that get a group together, give them space to learn, you know, and let them, let them learn while they're building their own work and really cool things can happen. And that's, that's why I, I dig it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, when I think of the word dojo and ninja, you know, you know, pictures come to mind, you know, maybe wax on, wax off, you know, uh, a room full of people all practicing the same motions. Uh, so maybe, uh, Dion, how would you define dojo in this sense, uh, in the, maybe in the more tech sense uh, that you guys both experienced? <laughs> yeah, well, look, you're, you're calling upon the name. And uh, these days we try and stay away from terms like ninja and, and all of that. Uh, we, we are still using the word dojo, although some people object to that. One of the reasons we're still using it is because we haven't found an English word equivalent uh, translation. Um, I think one of the things that worked really well at Target, there were great people there doing great things and really good leadership, right? So I don't want to uh, discount that. But the fact that they chose dojo as the metaphor for this learning environment they were creating, I think led to some accidental, really great results. Um, you know, dojo is a word, Japanese word. It literally means place of the way. It's usually used to describe um, meditation halls and more commonly Aikido martial arts studios. So when you think of a martial arts studio, like you were saying, Austin, there are all kinds of images and thoughts that pop in your head immediately. One of them is it's a space that's different from your normal everyday space, right? You go there for a specific purpose. And it's not someplace you go for a weekend and all of a sudden you know Aikido, right? You have to go, you have to practice, you have to get feedback, you have to get guidance of someone in sort of a coach role. So I think this metaphor led to a lot of really good accidental outcomes. Uh, it wasn't completely accidental. Joel mentioned Jason Walker. Jason had been to a chef conference and the, the keynote talk was on developing DevOps Kung Fu. So that's where he got the idea for the, the martial arts metaphor. Um, funnily enough, it was almost called the goat farm because there are all these sheep dipping and farm metaphors in DevOps as well. And Target really started out as a DevOps dojo. But um, I'm, I'm glad it's not the goat farm. I, you know, I can't imagine running around to enterprises saying, we want to help you install a goat farm. You know, what? <laughs> Dojo's odd enough, uh, but it's intriguing to people. Um, so, yeah, I think from that standpoint, if you keep thinking through that metaphor, there are all kinds of really good, intentional, immersive learning just sort of practices that come when you adopt this mindset of this space being a dojo. Uh, coding dojos were around a long time before that, right? But for from my experience, coding dojos were usually shorter term, like maybe once a month meetups uh, for 90 minutes to two hours where people would get together for deliberate practice. So that part is in common. Uh, but it was usually, you know, katas or some kind of exercises. It wasn't doing your real world work. 
So as Joel alluded to earlier, what's really powerful about this model of immersive learning, even if you end up calling it something different, which a lot of organizations do adopt a different kind of name that's appropriate for their domain, right? But what's really powerful is you get teams into this space for a time boxed period of time where they are allowed to focus on learning over delivery. So the learning gets prioritized during that time period. And then you've got the guidance of coaches, repetitive practice. It's a safe space for learning. Um, teams are learning together collaboratively. So using ensemble working quite a bit. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a great environment that Joel and I have seen results in our coaching that we didn't see prior to this model working with teams. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, what would be, so, so is it that they're working on their actual work, but they are prioritizing learning? Is that kind of what a day is in, in the dojo? What, what does it look like, uh, you know, from moment to moment in that context? Joel, you want to take that one? It's, so it's hard to say what it looks like moment to moment because we talk about learning in the moment. Um, and so typically what it looks like before a team comes in, we'll talk with them about um, we'll talk with them about what 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 success looks like for their team. We'll talk a little bit about you know where do they want to see the product go, where they want to explore it. We'll talk about the things that teams want to learn, and we'll also talk about uh, what's hard about the way things work right now. And so they might say things like, "We have a lot of defects," or "It's really hard for us." You know, our builds don't deploy regularly, and they'll, they'll, they'll talk about the things that are frustrating for them. And so we're thinking about these things when we're working in the day-to-day -day, uh, situations with the teams. So we'll be working with the teams, uh, we, standard kind of agile practices. We'll talk about, you know, the stand-up, but the stand-ups are actually a little bit different, you know. Um, but it's really about when we're in the moment, helping the team pause and say, is there a different way we should try and do this? Is there something that might help us learn to approach it differently? Should we try it three different ways? Sometimes as a, as a coach, we will just replay back to them like, we've had this problem before, let's slow down right now and let's try a couple different ways or let me teach you a technique. Uh, many times, uh, many organizations talk about, we want to do test-driven development, right? That's everybody's been talking about it for 20 years. We want to do it, but just not right now because we can't miss our deadline. We'll get to it at the end of the release, right? For, for us, when working with teams, when teams talk about they have quality problems or it's hard to debug something, or it's it's or they, they have coupling and dependencies upon team, we will very intentionally lead them uh, early on saying, we need to teach these practices. And we'll talk about why, but we will introduce testing and test driven right off the bat. Sometimes it's a means to help teams work more effectively. Sometimes it's simply to have teams have better context. If a team can't think of how to test something, chances are they don't know what they're doing to start with. And so like, we should probably not worry about the code right now. We should worry about what we're doing. So like coming back to your question, Chris, it changes day to day. The coaches are thinking about what's going to help the team. And then sometimes it's being very deliberate saying we are going to do this right now. Sometimes it's replaying back to them saying, hey, this happened. We should probably think and try ways to make it better. And sometimes it's just what's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that helps a lot. It reminds me a lot of uh, prior experiences with uh, quote unquote internal coaches or uh, I'm going to maybe start calling him senseis now to continue the, the theme, but uh, where it's not like they come in saying like, hey, I'm going to teach you this agile thing and I'm going to like, you know, just 
you know, or I'm going to, whatever, I'm going to teach Kubernetes or I'm going to teach whatever. And I'm just going to come in and teach it. It's like, they show up on the team, they hang out and they figure out what problems are. And then they just start coaching and helping with whatever problems are highest priority. It could be prioritization. Like you said, it could be test-driven development. It could be whatever. Um, so if you're kind of taking that uh, sensei coach role, they see a problem. And if you're doing actual work for me, uh, so it's not like I would think like, oh, okay, if you were doing a dojo where it's all practice code or something like, oh, what's the problem you have? Oh, you have a quality problem. Let's do TDD. And then you start doing a, a kata in TDD and not on real code. So how would it work in the dojo model? Because it's about doing real work, right? So would it, uh, I'm guessing, Dion, that you open up the real code and start doing whatever practice or, you know, how does that flow? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Joel was alluding to kind of establishing team goals before mm -hmm. you start learning goals. The other thing is in the first few days that a team is in this experience, uh, we'll build out a backlog for the dojo itself. And mm -hmm. that generally includes primarily delivery goals. And mm -hmm. In many cases, we're teaching teams story mapping. It's been really common for us lately uh, to run into teams and organizations that have been successful in DevOps adoption, and they've sort of broken down that wall between development and operations, but it, it's leaving it very apparent that there's another wall between, quote, the product people and the business and the engineers. So a lot of times what we're doing is we're starting with story mapping and the first week of a team's experience might even be sort of an expanded community of people beyond just the engineers. Once we've done that, we will kind of look at the backlog of real world work that needs to be done and the learning goals and say, what work can we do that aligns with the learning goals to get started with? And, you know, sometimes maybe the highest learning goal, you got to do something else in the code before you can get to that. But you're generally going through that kind of thought process. And then when we do start coding from day one, it's very disciplined, slow down quite a bit, right? Make mm -hmm. sure we're using whatever branching strategy is supposed to be used. In some cases, teams are learning trunk-based development and they're switching from something else. Uh, making sure that the CI/CD pipeline is completely in place for every line of code we write from the get-go, uh, making sure we're starting with tests. Uh, and tests can be challenging because, as you know, if you're pulling up legacy code, um, it's not always easy to get the code under test. But that in and of itself is an incredibly powerful learning opportunity, right? And I think that's one of the things that makes this model really powerful because I look, I used to teach two day TDD workshops. And one of the common problems that we would have is we would get, we would check in with teams or organizations after we had done these. And they would say, yeah, you know, the class was great. We felt like we learned a lot, but we had a really hard time applying it when we got back to our code base and it didn't really stick. Uh, the dojos have been much more successful in, in that regard. Um, the other thing I'll throw in before I forget, because it occurred to me a second ago, since the pandemic, uh, we have been relying on ensemble working quite a bit more than when we were in the same physical space. It's not that we weren't doing collaborative group work together, but it was sort of unstructured, if you will. So 
pretty much every physical space would have big 55 inch TVs in every team area. And we would do a lot of work as a team on that big TV. But we weren't really following driver navigator and, and we didn't bring a lot of structure and really sort of teach people the, the etiquette and the, the way of working together in ensemble. Since the pandemic, we've had Woody Zool partner up with us in a couple organizations and we often start, uh, this is one area where we might do a kata to kind of really keep them focused on, we're learning how to work together right now, let's not get distracted by our real code base. And that's not for a long period of time. In in yeah. some cases, it's half a day. Uh, but once once you get a little bit of grounding in it, then you start working in the real code base. And I have probably have rambled way off topic. <laughs> well, I wanted uh, to get that in. What would you attribute the shift to more ensemble work to? Is it just because uh, it was easier um, to communicate that way, uh, you know, because you're talking about less structure versus yeah. like, how, how, uh, do you have anything specific that you'd point to that, that made it more common? So Joel and I have been kicking this around, Chris. I think, I think the way I'm thinking of it right now, my current working theory is that we're on Zoom not right now, right? Most people think of Zoom as a communication tool. It's not really a tool for working together and collaborating together. We have a lot of collaboration skills working with people in the same physical space that we're not even aware we have, right? I, I talked about story mapping earlier. And in story mapping sessions with a, a decent sized group of people, a lot of the times after an initial map is laid out, you'll find people gravitating toward a certain area and sort of subgroups will pop up a little bit. Right, that happens really naturally when we're, when we're in a room together, and then people will call other people. You know, hey Austin, can you come look at this for a second? You know, and then at a certain point, you step back and you regroup and you look at the whole thing. Unless you sort of very consciously, intentionally do that in Zoom, it often doesn't happen. So yeah. I think for me, teaching people the structure of how to do ensemble work together. It enables them to be more collaborative over Zoom instead of just communicate over Zoom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, it's funny. You know, both in person and online, a lot of the time, uh, if I if I see uh, you know, like one behavior that I kind of tell everybody is really good in an ensemble is everybody's speaking a roughly equal amount of time. Um, and I think that's you know a lot easier to do with heavier structure uh and and it becomes more of an intuitive thing as you get experience over time but for new ensembles i think it really has to be explicitly laid out and uh and strict navigation can really help with that but it it feels a little unnatural um so yeah yeah right on, yeah right it's on. funny you say that one of the teams that i worked with um it, it was interesting and initially they were kind of like ah, i don't know about this ensemble <laughs> stuff we were only doing it three hours a day. Long-term, they ended up doing it six, seven hours a day, even after I would log off. So that was pretty amazing. Uh, but the other thing that was interesting is when we introduced it kind of the way Woody does, where there's strict driver navigator, and then you sort of relax the, the single navigator, the strict navigator, they by themselves actually went back to that more structure. 
because mm-hmm. they found one or two people dominating. So having that is a, a fallback option. And, you know, Woody having taught that first rather than jumping straight to like, here's how you do it. It really gave them some tools. And I think that structure is important in a remote world. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. Cause remote work, you know, if it's just people talking to each other and that that's great for a conversation, that's fine. But if you're starting to do work as a team, usually what it'll lead to is someone shares their screen, right? And once a screen is being shared, it's not a far leap to ensembling, or it almost is ensembling, assuming as the screen is shared. But some of the structure just helps it turn into collaboration as opposed to one person just talking, saying out loud what they're doing and letting other people watch, right? You know, and so I think I think like I think you're right. When you're in person, a lot of that's natural, especially if you're on a whiteboard or um but over zoom <laughs> yeah there, there's a lot of uh, things that come to people's mind when they think of zoom right and there's <laughs> often a lot of negative connotations where it's just a teacher or a leader just talking for a very long time with a group of faces watching <laughs> right yeah. um and so to flip that into something collaborative um yeah it's a lot of the stuff from ensembling can really help uh so i appreciate you jumping into that that was a, a good revelation for me um, maybe switch gears a little bit uh, to jump to you, Joel. So I noticed there's a lot of commonality between dojos and maybe what someone might have called their coaching practice, you know, whether internal or externally hired. What's the big difference for an organization if you're coming in and doing a dojo? Like what makes it stand apart from just hiring someone to come coach a team? Yeah. So, uh, the common disclaimer, you know, everybody's mileage may vary situation, right? <laughs> uh, so I, I can only base it upon my experience. Um, typically, when coaches are brought in, uh, and the, even Dion and myself, the same situation when we were just doing coaches, you know, uh, with David years ago, we were typically brought in because somebody said, this team needs to do that. Usually it wasn't the team, but somebody came in and said, make this team do that. And this way they can get something done faster. If you teach them and you show them how to do stand-ups, then therefore every two weeks they'll have a higher velocity or some other kind of nonsense like that. Um, and again, I think coaches have good intentions, but that's typically how it's always played out. Uh, when we're talking about what we're doing uh, in, for, with groups, it's, it's never about uh, the, the process or the approach. It's really more about the, the learning uh, and, and development of the team. The, like the analogy that uh, I've given, and Deanne's probably heard it too many times now. Uh, I mentioned we coach, I coach baseball. My son plays baseball. Uh, he has a hitting coach. He's, he's 14, going to be 15, has a hitting coach. And his hitting coach uh, said, like, look, when you come to me, I can either make your swing better so you can hit better tomorrow. Or he said, or we can start and, and make it so you become your own hitting coach. So this way, when you're in the game and you realize – I'm not, something's quite off. You can think about how you should adjust. And he goes, my goal is to make it so you're your own hitting coach. I would tell you, that's what we're trying to do with the teams we work with. We're not trying to make them hit a home run tomorrow. We're trying to make it so that when they're, when they're in the game, cause they're in the game long after we're we've left, we want them to be able to kind of, we want them to be able to pause and reflect and say, I know how to fix this. How do we fix this together? And if we can do that, like that's, that's fundamentally the difference. It's not process. It's, it's just, can we help people to have those moments on their own? And that's the difference. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, uh, 
um, coaching up other coaches, so to speak, uh, <laughs> or self coaches. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, so, so we, we, of course, help organizations, you know, coach their own coaches. I, I'll give you another example. Mm. I think this happens with a lot of teams. This, and this happened um, earlier this week with a team I was with. Uh, a problem comes in, uh, they find a defect, and they're working on ensemble, and they're talking about how they want to go about solving it. And the person comes up, has some ideas, and he walks through it. And, he, and they kept on using this language of like, this is the right fit. This is the right fit, right? And for the, for the language. And everybody on the team, and there was five of them, they all agreed it's right. And I said, well, let's, uh, I'm not disagreeing upon the solution or anything like that, but I go, let's just take a moment. I go, everybody take a minute, write down what, when you think of right fit, what do you all mean? And let's just talk about it, you know? And so, so mm -hmm. when these problems come up, and I'm sure you know how it plays out. The first person talks about right fit, and they, and the, which is really wonderful. This woman said, "Right fit to me is about how easy is it for the next person to change it." Well, that's a really nice observation. The next person said, "Right fit is does it does it close the ticket right away, because it gets off of our queue." Another person said, uh, "Well, right fit for me is I want to try four ideas, and then I want to I want to narrow it down to one." And another person said, "Right fit is the one that I can learn from faster." And another person, I, I have my notes, and somebody else said something around um, uh, around architecture and patterns and how it would scale. And I go, this is really interesting. Like you all agreed a minute ago around, yes, this is the right fit, but in in one minute we all agree, we all recognize that we don't even agree what right fit means. And this is like this is the, the coaching for learning stuff. Like we could have just let it go and said, yep, the team they talked about it, they all agreed it was the best solution, but they didn't really know what they meant. And like, I think it's like, it's those intentional pauses that you can have with teams where you say like, look, this is like the slowing down, the learning over delivery. If, if I can learn and I can understand when Chris is approaching a problem, this is his frame of mind and he's thinking about it. And this is how Austin's thinking about it. If we can build that together, man, the, the teams will crush it. They will crush it because they understand each other's mental models, but we, people don't think about those things. All right. Um, I, Let's uh, let's take a look at coaching for learning at, at this point. Uh, Dion, what do you think uh, about that topic? Uh, sure. So Joel and I try try not to be too negative, but I think in the agile coaching space, there's way too much focus on facilitation, right? Facilitation skills, facilitation workshops, et cetera, et cetera. And there's not enough focus on teaching. Uh, we all sort of acknowledge that teaching is something you do as a coach, but I, I mean, I'll ask either one of you, has anyone ever taught you how to teach as a coach un unless you specifically sought that out? Yeah, I, I think I can say for myself that um, I learned a lot about facilitation and, and thinking about coaching, but I did... Uh, I did kind of look into cognitive science and, and found books around learning to learn. And, um, you know, and, and one thing that I think is, you know, now that you mention it, because I, I found myself saying this to someone recently, um, is spacing and interleafing to amplify mm. or to, to re retain information longer. And it's, it's something that, um, you know, I think people don't think about a lot. Uh, and so, yeah, you could be facilitating something, but it feels optimal to, dig into something and, and, and people will generally not have uh, a uh, inkling of that. So I think I yeah. just spent 
I, I went through that very recently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, the journey you just described that you went on yourself is similar to kind of what Joel and I are, are going through now con continuously. Um, I mentioned, you know, I started as a developer and I, I kind of moved into coaching by accident because I got put on teams as a as an engineer, but also, well, hey, you know this CI stuff and you know this TDD stuff. Can you teach the rest of the team how to do it and help them learn? I never really had any sort of formal training on this. The more we got into coaching, and especially when we hit the dojo, we said, look, if one of the principles of the dojo is it's focused on learning over delivery, we need to start learning how people learn. So same thing, reading books on cognitive science, neuroscience, you know, exactly how is it that people learn? And you're, you just touched on a couple of things there, Chris, that we have found really valuable repetition and not only repetition, but spaced repetition. So the whole Herman Ebbinghaus thing back to the late 1800s, that if you don't do spaced repetition of something you learn, you're going to lose it very, very quickly. And going back to the comment about the TDD workshops I used to teach, this is what happened to people in those situations when they weren't able to apply it immediately to their real code bases. In a very short order of time, they lost everything they they picked up in the workshop. This is what also makes the these immersive learning environments that we're talking about really powerful. Uh, the original model, and this is changing a little bit from organization to organization, especially with remote, but the original model was six weeks long. And there's a lot of opportunity for repetition and spaced repetition when you're actually coaching a team for six weeks that you don't get uh, when you just do a two-day workshop. Um, so yeah, that that's a big part of it. I think the other part of coaching for learning is just the mindset that your job here is not to coach this team for performance, to hit a certain date on a project or a feature deliverable. Your job is to coach for learning. And yeah, if there's a desired delivery date and that kind of thing, we can sort of work with it, but really that's, that's secondary. So a big part of successfully setting up these learning experiences, making sure everyone, you know, all the stakeholders, all the domain, uh, experts, everyone knows that we're making space for the team to learn. Uh, Joel and I will often say, assume you're going to get about 50% of the output, however you mention, however you measure the output. Uh, what we found in practice is it often plays out that the team delivers more, um, which is very ironic, you know, slow down and wow, you learn some things and all of a sudden you're delivering more faster, or they deliver more effectively because they narrow in on what's really important to deliver and get that done first. Uh, these are all aspects. Joel, what am I forgetting about coaching for learning? I, I think you nailed them all, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, you I, know, the, it's the, the context doing their work, um, the, the space repetition. One thing that we'll do, Chris, kind of like to your point there of their interweaving, is you know, a team uh, like story mapping. Story mapping, you might say, well, how can a team learn story mapping with space repetition? They'll do it and then they won't come back to it. No, we'll come back to it in the second or third week. And like, it might be like, it might be something as simple as how do we need to update the story map? Or it might be like, let's practice and let's do it again. And like, mm -hmm. because we, we need to repeat it. We don't want it to be, we did the story map because we had to for the dojo. We want it to be, it helped us this is how we do it. And this is, so we practice it. We very intentionally practice these, these techniques. 
Yeah. yeah. I, um, you know, speaking of that, like, I think that a lot of these things, um, you know, when I was looking it up, uh, Barbara Oakley's books, um, you know, reading Mind Shift and learning how to learn, uh, those, those have been quite good at uh, anchoring a lot of those ideas. So it just uh, comes to mind. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. Uh, yeah, one thing that was really resonating me with both what you're talking about, maybe going back to your uh, sports analogy, Joel, uh, is that with coaching, I think there's something funny that happens when we step into the business or tech world with, with terms, right? So me and my wife were talking about it the other day. And if you talk about like having a coach for someone to learn a sport or even to learn how to sing, like my, my, my daughter's doing, it would be quite uh, alarming to everyone involved if it's like, oh, we're going to teach you, uh, you know, how to play uh, football or baseball, for example. And all the coach does is just lecture at, you know, the people for an hour and then walks away and be like, all right, you guys all do it when I'm gone, you know, and, and that would be alarming to almost anybody, you know, if you're teaching science, you know, any of those things, it's like you, you get in there and you start doing, doing the stuff. Right. And so, you, you know, you're with the people learning and you're modeling it. You're saying, do this, don't do that. You're this, do don't do that. But I think in the, in, in the business world, uh, uh, for some reason we switch into that mode and it's just like, oh, of course I'm not doing it with you. Of course I'm not giving you guidance as we're doing it step-by-step. Step. That's way too micromanaging or intrusive, you know? And so I think um, uh, uh, what I love about your, your dojos or ensembling is that it, it, it almost becomes right in alignment with the, what most people think of coaching in the normal world, <laughs> right? Mm. For anything where you're actually physically moving. Um, and, and I think in the tech world, we still are doing things. It's just less uh, physical, so to speak. Um, I did have one fault question, Joel, on this topic was, what's funny is when I saw this co topic, coaching for learning, I first took it to mean that the coach is learning a lot by coaching. Oh. <laughs> or, so you were more meaning it for the, the people that the coach is teaching, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. We're, okay. we're coaching for, you go call it mm -hmm. almost like coaching for learning moments or, or you know, something like that. We're, we're in essence trying to create the environment where learning can happen. One thing Deanna and I will, will, will riff on quite a bit is this idea that um, if, if technology were easy, uh, like deploying to the cloud, then everybody, it would be easy for everybody because they could just write it in their wikis like they already have. Just follow the wiki and everything will deploy and everything will be successful. That's not the case, right? Like we have to, you know, we have, it's by doing the things we learn what we need to do. And so we, we can't be removed. We can't just say, I wrote it down, go read it. It, it doesn't work that way. We have to be there in the moment with the, with the groups. That's nice, right on. Well, uh, maybe it's a good time to transition to the last topic, uh, post-Agile. Uh, you wanna kick us off, uh, Dion? Uh, sure. Joel and I, as we're working with teams, we get a lot of, so talking about coaching for learning when the coach learns, right? Uh, uh, I'm old enough, I've been doing this long enough that I'm starting to run into people that never worked in a quote, non-Agile way before, right? So they don't have a, Chris is nodding, he's seen this. <laughs> when you try and do your comparisons, you know, remember when we used to do this and, uh, people just look at you like, no. So there's, there's, there's not that frame of reference because of that. I think they ask, ask some sort of beginner's mind type questions that sometimes are, are really interesting. Like 
hey, if we are deploying every day, why are we doing two-week sprints? You know, what's what's the value in this? And I'm not saying there's never any value in still having a two-week time box for work. Um, I'm one of the people that without sort of intermediate deadlines, you know, I'm, I'm horrible. Term paper the last night at university, all that kind of stuff. But um, it, it's interesting when these kinds of questions come up and what it's really making me and Joel, as we examine this sort of do is say, you know, I, I think we are moving into this post agile world and it really is more about flow. Um, I lived in Minneapolis for 25 years and was lucky enough to meet Tom and Mary Poppendick and become friends with them. And I, I reread things that they wrote 20 years ago. And I feel like, hey, we are we are getting around to this sort of as an industry now. Um, I kind of think of Agile as being this thing that started when the project kicked off. And for me, it ended when your code was in a binary repository that someone else could deploy. Now that's changed with DevOps and we've sort of shifted further to the right and what a, a team in many organizations these days is responsible for is you know you you run it you support it you deploy it all of that i still think we're shifting left in a lot of ways as an industry and that's what we mean kind of by post agile and i reference the pop index one of the things that we are constantly stressing and we tie it to this learning in the dojo is that learning needs to be holistic right it's it's really valuable for teams to understand is far left on the value stream, what's happening there and how that ties into being able to do really fast deployments to a subset of your customer base using all your DevOps technology in order to get feedback to take it all the way back to the left end of the value stream, if you will, right? So there's that aspect of it, not to mention the whole systems thinking aspect of it. So one of the things that's always struck me as a little bit ironic is the DevOps world is highly immersed in theory of constraints and lean thinking and, and all of this theory, right? And yet for many people, it focuses on code commit to running in production. It's like, well, what if your biggest problems are not in that segment of the value stream? What if they're beyond that? And I think there are people in the DevOps community who recognize this now and are trying to push things further outward. But for me, that's where this post-agile world, that's where this, this term comes in for us. And it really is, helping teams and organizations adopt a systems thinking view of the whole value stream and how improving any capability along the way, how it impacts the other capabilities and really being intentional about where you focus your improvement efforts. I've, uh, I've spoken to DevOps engineers that have left teams because the, the ability to be lean was was not extended beyond their very small segment and uh and actually went to teams where they would be doing technically less devops but more optimization of the total value stream so uh, i've i've actually seen that uh that play out emotionally for people hmm. um and i think it's a really powerful thing to be able to have uh um uh, not control over that, but influence on it. Um, and, and I actually think that uh, I, I would hypothesize uh, that the DevOps engineers in environments where they are isolated from the rest of the system 
uh, can is probably incredibly frustrating <laughs> in most cases. So yeah, I, I like that idea. Yeah, what comes to mind for you, Joel, for uh, post agile? <laughs> Dion hit a, hit a bunch of it. Some of it is just like like Dion would say, like the questions we'd get asked. Um, you know. Uh, knowing the the crowd you all run with, you know the estimates thing tends to come up quite a bit, um, and it's just uh, there. Look, uh, I'm not a no estimates you know zealot by any means, but I'm also not the person that's going to say we. It, there's no value in kind of estimating things that you don't know about. But there are interesting questions around there around like instead of like how big, there's an interesting question around is it too big, and then if you if you to answer that question, you have to have a whole lot more information. And sometimes that's just beneficial for teams. You know, sometimes teams will be told that it has to be done on September 1st. What happens on September 2nd? Oh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> do, you have, do you have an idea of the magnitude a day later? If you don't have an idea of the magnitude, September 1st is a lie. And it's just like, it's, it's things like that. It's like, I wouldn't worry about it. Those, the estimates don't matter when we don't know the other information. And it's the same thing when somebody is saying, uh, you know, similarly around the estimates, but like, when will it be done? I think it's more interesting to ask, is it done enough? Or what? Or what should we do next? When will you know, when will it be something? When will it be interesting? Those are more interesting conversations. And I think in the, in the kind of current agile space, I think the questions are just getting. I don't want to say boring. They're just they're just not interesting. Yeah. And so I, I just I'd rather get to stuff. You know, Chris, you mentioned like it, it, like dudes want to go closer to like maybe less DevOpsy stuff, but they feel more in control of it. I think it's just people want to understand, they want to connect with their work with a purpose. Mm. And if we, if we take information away from people because the product owner does this and then the scrum master does that and then the, and the team just does this, you're robbing people of information, you're robbing people of joy. It's just, it's not, it's not fun. No, I, I think that's a big part of the no estimates movement in general is uh, removing the distraction rather than because a lot of it is just is just harping on this concept where it's like you know it it seems like it's not causing harm but there's no there there are much more interesting questions to answer and um and it, it is I, I mean it's it's highly absorbing uh, the estimation process for a lot of teams right um and and so i've run into teams that spend at least a fourth of their time estimating things that that are not interesting things to know. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that sentiment. There are more interesting questions to answer and there are better places we could be spending our time. Yeah. And frequently, engineers actually have wonderful ideas on how to improve the product once they're given information. Yeah. Because, I mean, your, your, your engineers are the ones using it all the time and they have these awesome ideas. You know, like, if we did this, it'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it, it probably would be. We should do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and what I was going to say, just to tie it back to uh, dojos, is that the more I've worked in a dojo style or ensemble style, it's interesting how many of the, so to speak, agile things um, fade away in one sense. And in another sense, they like realize their true self, right? Yeah. You know, like when we're really collaborating well as a whole team and the whole system is in the room, you know, a lot of this extra stuff isn't needed and we're just delivering value, you know, daily or something like, like you were saying earlier, Dion with, you know, what's, what's, what's an EVA two week sprint when we're delivering daily or something. Right. Um, 
But anyways, I suspect Chris for coming close to time. Yeah, am I right? Exactly. <laughs> That's the next thing that was going to come out of my mouth. Um, so, uh, um, uh, Joel and Dion, are, is there anything that you'd like to plug or share before we wrap it up? Uh, so we we are uh, putting a book out, uh, the second book. The first book was kind of structure, you know, here's what a dojo is in your organization, how to get it going. Uh, the next book, uh, which we're hoping, uh, as I'm looking at Dion here, we're hoping to uh, wrap up the edits by next week uh, <laughs> and, and get it uh, shipping soon. Uh, the, the The intent there is really for uh, coaches, uh, the people that want to help teams learn, uh, we want this. This book is is designed for them. It goes into some of like the background and and why to do things a certain way. So this is some of the books you mentioned, Chris, and like the, the you know how to approach problems and how to approach learning. And then it gets into some practices and some techniques around how to actually do it with teams. Um, it, it, when Dean and I first started the book, we thought it was going to be uh, short in the sense we were thinking like <laughs> 150 ish pages. Um, we've cut some out, but it's still longer than we expected. <laughs> so, yeah. Fantastic. Alrighty. Uh, well, um, you know, check that out. And then, uh, you know, to our audience, if you know anyone who can uh, use more information on immersive learning and, and uh, dojo style environments or uh, coaching for learning, you know, maybe uh, somebody who spent a lot of time on facilitation, but could use a, a little nudge to go in the learning how to learn direction. Uh, or if you have somebody that thinks a lot about uh, post agile in mind, be sure to share this episode with them. And then uh, also please like and subscribe and ring the notification bell. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Thank you very much. Thanks guys for being on the show. Thanks for Thanks having for us. Having us.